Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. Turn, if you have a Bible where you are, to the book of Hebrews. We are going to continue looking at this letter written to Hebrew Christians at the time after, uh, sometime after the the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Christ to heaven uh, in a time of great suffering, in a time of great persecution, in a time of great hardship, um, which uh, the more I think about it, probably just a regular time. Um, when, when 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 is the people of God, when is the world not in a time of hardship sometime, somewhere? When is life not, if you're, you know, they, they always say if you're, if you're not in a time of hardship, um, you're going to be. And so what do we do in the midst of hardship? What do we do in times when, we're, when life is strained? Um, how do we keep on living faithfully? How do we keep on living hopefully when life is crumbling around us? Um, because we tend as humans to live by what we see and can handle and not by what we don't see. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying um, the way to keep on keeping on, some of the ways to keep on keeping on, um, in this particular section we've been talking about the, the, the critical element of what leads us to, uh, to strength, to a sense of buoyancy, to a sense of confidence, to a sense of vigor in the midst of suffering is faith. Faith is the engine is the engine, or it's not it's not the engine. The engine of our lives, as it were, if you think of if you think of if you think of a life as a as a train, you think of life as a train with three cars, the engine being the predominant the driving, the power source. Then you follow it up by the tender car, which is that which has all the fuel and coal, and then follow that up by the caboose. What's, and what's the caboose? That's where you sit and drink coffee. What drives the life, what drives our lives, what, is it, what empowers our life is the person of Jesus, the power of His grace. What fuels that power? What fuels it? What what brings it life? What what all, it, it, it is the engine. Nothing else can be its engine. What what fuels it? What gives it movement in my life is faith. That's the tinder car. And the final car. What follows up behind the grace of God, the power of His grace, the person of Jesus. What follows behind that is the faith that we, that we place in it. It fuels it. It moves it. What follows behind that? The caboose, the, the feelings of our lives, the warm fuzzies. The warm fuzzies do nothing but ride along. The warmth, the, the feelings that we have in our lives, the sense of whatever we're feeling, the angst, the happy feelings, the joy, you know, and often what we try to do is we try to reverse. We live in, we live instinctively where we reverse the power source of that train and we let the feelings guide us. 
faith in our feelings. We try to let the fuel of our faith placed in our feelings drive the train and then drag Jesus along with it. But in reality, you can't, that can't happen with a real train. The caboose has no power. And we're throwing all kinds of faith into it, all kinds of, of tinder, all kinds of, of fuel, of trust, of, of, of a sense of confidence, a sense of hopefulness, a sense of, a sense of resting in our feelings and, and putting, putting a whole lot of energy and, and feelings and trust in that when Christ is the only thing that can drive our train. So that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us again and again. Let's look at another section of it, if you will. I'm going to start reading at verse 13. If my glasses hold out on me. Start reading at verse 13 and follow along down a few paragraphs as we go. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had once, who he had received the promise, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God would raise him from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped at the, at the, as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses... Parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of, king, of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as, a, as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead for his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He, perse- he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as, they were on dry, as if it was on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. This is God's Word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and for Your Word. Thank You that, uh, Lord, I pray that You would teach us by it, that You would captivate us through it, uh, that You would um, draw us to Yourself, and that we might live more in line with what You show us here, um, not because uh, living more in line with it is 
is, uh, makes you happy. For, Lord, you are pleased because of the work of Christ. Lord, let us live out of your pleasure and thus discover who we really are and discover our truest pleasures ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, there is a moment in my life that I'm not particular. I'm not at all proud of. Um, it was er, it was uh, years and years and years ago, back in the olden days, with uh, with my wife uh, Becky and I had gone to uh, gone to a store um, to deal with a return uh, situation and the, uh, an exchange situation, and they had called and told us that they were uh, that, that the thing the item we had was in, and so I was we were coming up. And um, to get it, and Becky was with me, and so uh, we went to the store clerk, and we, you know, talked about it, or, you know, and we, we, you know, she, the the person behind the counter had said, you know, it was just the person was waiting on us, said so we have to wait a minute, I have to go back and check, this check, you know, we've got a line of things, and I'm going to go back, you know, check to make sure where it is, and so, and so, uh, and so um, we waited, and we waited, and we waited. And so when it finally got to be our turn, I gave her the little slip that said that, you know, this, and, and I had the I had the exchange ready to go. And so she went back, and so then we waited some more. I mean, she went back to the thing. And then she comes back out and told us um, that they didn't have it. Well, my energy level in all the waiting had already risen to a great extent, and I was a little bit inconvenienced by the process and the fact that I was that, and, and I told, and I and I got to some, I, to, with some energy, I, I informed her that I had been waiting all this time, and that I was not here by my own desire. I was here because I was phoned, I was messaged to be here, and that they had called us and told us, and why wasn't the situation, and you know, more accurately, and didn't they keep records, and how could they lose something that they had thought that was in, and how, why wasn't I? And I mean, I was elevated to some extent. Becky's standing there, saying nothing, um, uh, to the point where this engagement with this, with this store clerk ha was, had, become, had become, and I, it was one of those things where um, she stopped being able to answer my questions, and she stopped, being, she stopped being able to respond to my concerns, but I was not done expressing my concerns, and my energy, and my impatience, and my uh, and my discomfort in this process, um, and her words became less and less, and my words became more and more because I took her words less and less to mean she was disengaging and being dismissive of me when in actuality she was shutting down. Uh, she was, she was uh, unable to help me in this situation, and as her words got less and less and my words got more and more, all she had left was to burst into tears. And then she, she excused herself in, 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 as I look back, one of the most professional ways I could imagine. And then her manager came and took over the situation and, and apologized, and I left. Uh, uh, I was, at the moment, unmoved by such a thing and left as angry as I had begun. My wife was mortified. Uh, I don't know that she has ever been more embarrassed by me than at that moment. 
when I was a much younger man. Uh, I don't believe she had, I'm sure she's been embarrassed by me any countless times in life, uh, but that one particular moment, I'm sure, and she lived through that silently. She lived through that, uh, and she stuck with me, uh, but uh, amazingly embarrassed uh, as I left the store and sat in my car, it occurred to me, it dawned on me in a moment of clarity when I had a minute to breathe, when I had a minute to disengage from my discomfort. I sat in my car before we went, went back home, and it dawned on me what had just happened, and I was mortified. And now I'm, I, I go back in. I felt the desire and need to go back in. And I went back in, and I, and I, and I saw the woman who I had just dealt with. Uh, she was at a different counter. And when I came back in, I don't, know what, I don't know what was on her mind or what, but I noticed that she went back into the, she went back behind the, behind the, uh, in, in the room, behind the counter door. But the manager was there, and I went up to the manager, and I, and I apologized to the manager, and I said, I'm really sorry. That's, that was a, a hard, horribly um, insensitive and wrongful thing to do. I said, I don't expect that your associate would be willing for me to apologize to her, but if she is willing to hear me apologize and and to own up to this horrible thing, I would be, I would be very grateful if she, if she did. Well, the manager went back and she asked, and she said, yes, she's willing. I was, I was so happy. So she came out, and I was able to just simply tell her what a horrible person, human I was at that moment, and could she please forgive me? And, and I hope that we could continue to do business and that if she was here the next time I would love for her to help me with the process and but I understand if she didn't and really this is on her her she's in charge of this whole situation um, the amount of embarrassment that I had at that moment was huge the amount of embarrassment the amount of of, of, of uh, shame that I had at that moment was was amazing and that, that my wife had was amazing at that moment. Um, I'm sure that Becky, I wanted to hide under the table when I discovered what a, what a jerk I was being. Becky, I'm sure, standing there while it's happening, wanted to hide under the table and run, but there's no place to hide. I mean, and, she, and the fact that she stuck with me in the midst of that was an amazing grace and not just to run off and just leave me there to, to stew and to live this moment all by myself. I tell you this story about, about the shame I felt and how ashamed I was of myself in that moment and how I wanted to run from myself and how I wanted to, how I wanted to hide under a, under a, a table, under a rug, uh, and how Becky must have been ashamed of me in that moment. I don't, we never, we, she never exhibited, she never described her, her shame. She did, she did talk about how it was not the way to treat another person, but she was, but she was, I cannot 
fathom the depth of her shame, of her being ashamed of me in that moment. And she should have been, and yet she stayed in that moment. The reason I tell you that story is because in this passage, one of the chief words that stands out to me, one of the chief things that I want, that I think the author of Hebrews wants us to see in this moment as it relates to faith, is that when it says there in verse, in verse 16, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. The writer of Hebrews is saying, as shameful as the people of God are, as and the, he goes in, he's he's gonna li- he's gonna begin listing people's names, lives: Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Esau, Jacob, De- Joseph, Moses. He's mentioning name upon name upon name, life upon life upon life, all of whom, all of whose lives are filled with shameful, shameful, shameful things. They've done horrible things. Abraham, Abraham nearly disowned his wife. Abraham did did shameful things when he didn't think the promise of God was going to occur. Sarah, talk about shameful things that, you know, Sarah got so discouraged about the progress of God's kingdom, so hopeless, she says, well, maybe it's not me. Maybe I'm not supposed to be the one that bears a child. How about my servant? Would you? And he, she suggests that Abraham sleep with the servant and the, and the dysfunction of that. And then when the baby is born, Sarah, Sarah says, throw her out. I don't want her and her and her bastard child in my home. Get, get rid of her. I would rather have it then because the promise had come through her and she did have a child. Shameful. Esau, Jacob, Jacob, little conniving liar, that Jacob. He didn't trust that his father would bless him. He didn't trust that because of his life, his father would think well of him, that Isaac would give him a blessing, so he finagles the blessing. And his mother helped him. <laughs> there is, I am hard-pressed. I was telling this to somebody this week. I am hard-pressed to find any family, any life, any, any family in the, in, the, in the kingdom of heaven, any sort of uh, honorable family. They're all dysfunctional. I mean, and not, not. I mean, and when we look at it on the on the landscape of culture, I'm talking about utterly dysfunctional. Not just, oh, you know, they were they were sort of they didn't have the sort of upbringing they had. They're a little off, you know. No, you know, Jacob, Jacob, not only a conniving liar, not only a, 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 and, and and was conniving his whole life, um, uh, played favorites with his children. He's got this huge family. Lots of wives, lots of children. Dysfunction all across the board. And he plays favorites and says, Joseph's my favorite, and made it known that Joseph was his favorite, and then his brothers left him for dead. I tell you all this, and and I remind you of the utter embarrassment that all of these people were in their lives, and God says, no, I'm not ashamed of them. 
I was ashamed of myself in that store. I'm still a little, it's a little uncomfortable for me to be telling you that story because it shows a part of my life that I'm not at all proud of. It's been redeemed by Jesus. It's been washed. I'm not owned. I'm not, uh, I'm not identified by it. It's a, it's a story of illustration that I give you about an utter brokenness part of my heart and that if it weren't for Jesus, I would tend towards that my whole life. But praise God, the grace of God, the fact that he's not ashamed of me in that moment, the fact that he's not ashamed of me now, leads me to say, well, then maybe I can step forward into what is a better life, into a better human, into a better experience. Jesus is telling, the writer of Hebrews is telling the people as utterly wicked, as utterly shameful as these people are, God wasn't ashamed of them. He wasn't ashamed to stand by them, to be with them, to give them a promise, to give them hope. And therein lies some of the fuel for faith. Discovering that God is not ashamed of his people, that he finds favor with them. Not a, not a favor because of what they've done, but a favor that he's placed upon them, a favor that he has decided to have upon them. And that therefore they don't have to fear a sense of that they're that 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 in their moments of shame, that they will, that they, that they, that, that God will run away from them or abandon them or abandon you or me. The same way that when Becky was in that store with me, she stood there watching, standing, supporting, all lovingly done through her own sense of whatever whatever burden she was struggling with, whatever sense of shame or, or embarrassment she was feeling, she stayed. And that act of love, uh, that act of love powerfully changed and changed me and allowed me, gave me hope to step and into a better, into a better choice. And the same thing is true with the power of, of God staying, God saying, I am not embarrassed. I am not ashamed of you. You are my people, warts and all. And I am your God, and, and, and I am not going to abandon you. Part of, the, part of the power of faith is to discover and to trust, to discover that God is not ashamed. And the reason he's not ashamed is because he doesn't see us through the lens of our own abilities. He doesn't see us through the lens of our embarrassing acts. He doesn't see us through the lens of our abandonment and fear. He doesn't see us through the lens of our, of our reprehensible betrayals. He sees us through the lens of the person of his son, Jesus. And because Jesus was favorable, because Jesus never did anything shameful, Jesus never embarrassed his father, Jesus, Jesus never brought harm, never brought dishonor, never brought a sense of betrayal to anything that his father ever asked him to do. And because he was utterly and exceptionally and eternally perfect, God the Father looks at us through the, through the perfection of his son as we trust him. He looks at us through the perfection of his son and he is not ashamed of us because he sees us as if we are Jesus. When that idea, when that reality, and it's not an idea, it's not a concept, but when that reality, when the reality of that lands on the human heart, it leads me to, to be willing to surrender my life to him, you to him. 
That's really the next thing that we see in the passage. Not only do we, is it fueled, is our faith fueled by the sense of understanding that God is not ashamed of his people, but really, what is faith? Faith is basically surrendering me, surrendering, surrendering what I have, surrendering everything to God. When we see Abraham, one of the chief things that Abraham describes, now I've told you about his reprehensible life and about his dysfunctional family and about his lack of faith in many instances. There are times the, the writer of Hebrews puts together all of these snapshots, and, and you can think of this as sort of a photo album. It's a, it's a family. This is a story of a family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. On down to Moses, all part of all part of the plan of God that God works in this family. And what He's saying is, what He's saying and reminding us, the writer of Hebrews is reminding us, this is the way our family is. This is this is the reality. One of the one of the hard things about faith, one of the hard things about surrendering to God, I believe, is that we just the hard part about faith is I just don't know how it's going to turn out. I just don't know. I don't know what it's going to mean for me to put my faith in what God wants means that he doesn't have all the answers. I don't know what that what it's going to lead to. And so the writer of Hebrews says, well, let me show you what faith leads to. And he pulls out the album. And then opens up the book and goes, look at what happened with Abraham and what it led to. He didn't know what was going to happen when he went up on that mountain with his son. God says, I want you to sacrifice the child I just gave you. I want you to give him back to me. And Abraham goes, wait a minute, is it, he's the one that you promised was my, he's the one that you said I was going to be blessed by and that the nation would come from him, and, that, and now you want me to give him back? This doesn't make sense. What are you trying to, what are you trying to say? There's, and, and he's trying to noodle it out in his own head. He's trying to go, well, maybe God's going to bring him back from the dead. I don't know what that means. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is whenever we're struck, whenever there's a sense where God's asking us to do something in faith, it's faith always means trusting in what I can't see, but but the promise that God provides for what I can't see, which means surrendering my own script. It means surrendering my own need for control. It means surrendering, sometimes even surrendering the very thing that God has given me, surrendering it. And so Abraham up the mountain he walks with his son. Where was Sarah? Uh, the, script, the scriptures don't tell us, but if you were the mother of a child that God was demanding to, to have given back, if this was your child, could you be there when the father has to do what the father has to do? So up the mountain they walk, and, and Isaac's carrying the wood on which the sacrifice was going to be slain. And he, Abraham trusts in what God promises, even though it meant giving back the gift, even though it, it potentially meant giving back the gift. The child was the gift, and God... God's writing a bigger story. His one and only son. His one and only son. God's writing a bigger story. Right? He's writing a bigger story than, than what Abraham's life 
was about. In Abraham's life, it was his only son. It was the gift of God. He felt like this was a limited experience. What the heck is God asking me to do? What does it mean in this moment? It's my child. It's my small thing. Why is God asking me to give back my son to him? Why is he asking me to sacrifice my one and only son? And he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son based on the promise that God was giving him. But God never asked him to finish that. He stayed his hand. He stayed his hand. And in that moment, God, God let Abraham see how much faith he had and how much God was willing to come through for him. Please. But it was because God's writing a bigger story than just the script I'm, I'm experiencing, than just the scene I'm in. Because we're still listening to that scene right now. That scene, that scene for what Abraham was, it was his whole life, his whole world, his whole experience. Everything about this was his child, was his, was he was about to lose the, his most prized possession. And, he, and, in that, and in that moment, in that small moment, everything about his world, was everything about his life was this one child, this one gift in this small, small life in a small, small town, in a small, small region of the world. And God says, God's saying to him, trust the story that I'm writing in you. Because now that small, small life in a small, small family in a small, small region of a small, small part of the world, we're still looking back at that. And God said, God is showing us in metaphor. Abraham was willing to offer his one and only son, but never had to. And by that metaphor, we see that God not only was willing to offer his one and only son, but actually offered his one and only son so that you and I would be able to trust him moving forward. So that you and I wouldn't be, wouldn't be putting our faith in a feeling, in a warm fuzzy, in a, in a, in a sense of spiritual nuance that we can trust God, but we would be putting our faith that we would put, be putting our hope, that we would be putting our sense of surrender into a concrete historical reality of Jesus. How can I, why can I trust him now with my car payment? Why can I trust him now with my children's education? Why can I trust him now with reconciliation will occur in my family? Why can I trust him now for all of those things? Why can I trust him in the midst of my world shrinking and my hope dying, how, why can I trust him now? Because Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. He has put his promise in a person. He has put his, the reality of his hope in a person, in a life, in a reality, in, a, in, a, in an experience, in a historical moment. He hasn't let it rest in a feeling. And not even in snapshots of people who whimsically put their trust in him. He's put, it, he's put his, our confidence in a concrete reality, and he reminds us of it through the lives of the people God is, God is guiding. One and only son given to a family for a promise, asked to offer him as a sacrifice. They willingly, they willingly are, they are willing, but then 
never asked. God is willing and also offers the sacrifice. That's how faithful he is. That's how much he is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of us so much that he's willing to let his son, he's willing to, how much does he love us? How much is he captivated by us? How much is he not ashamed of the people he cares for? So much so that he's willing to surrender his one and only son for you. Can I trust him in the small thing? Can, can, can I trust him in, in the difficult things? I said that part of it, the part of understanding faith is, and, and living faith is realizing that God's not ashamed of us. The second part that we talk about is that it's not, is that it, does, it requires a surrender. But then the third part is, to, is that faith is about seeing the long game. It's about seeing the long haul, not the momentary snapshot of where I am that God is writing a bigger story than you are currently aware of in your life. We don't know what that is because all of these people, the story that God was writing, it's, it, goes into, it goes into great lengths to say all these people, they died and they didn't get the promise. Abraham died, he didn't get the promise. Isaac died, he didn't get the promise. He didn't get what was promised. Neither did Joseph, neither did Esau and Jacob, neither did Moses. Moses went through all of this and he went from rags to riches back to rags again. Moses' family, that their faith allowed them not to fear political retribution, that Moses' faith allowed him not to fear the Egyptian onslaught when he was guiding this people out of Egypt. How do we get to a place where faith, where we're not afraid? Most of us live out of a sense of fear all the time. I know I personally, I live out of fear. I live out of, and the reason I live out of fear is because I'm not certain that God is for me. I'm not certain that he's writing a positive story. I'm not certain that God is, that God is, that what he's doing in me, that my story is small. One of the things that I, I was talking with, with, with uh, somebody this week about the pandemic, one of the things about this pandemic is that because we're all staying at home, that the metaphor, the, the, the imagery that goes on there is, is that, and that if we spend too much time, especially as an extrovert, as someone who's more about outward social extroversion, you know, sort of outward life rather than the inward life. Um, extroverts probably come to this conclusion more quickly, but it's not, it's, not a, it's not a point that's exclusive to that temperament. But the idea being that when you're in a, when you're in a house and, and you have to stay in the four walls basically for weeks and weeks and weeks, the illusion is that the world is shrinking and that my story is shrinking, and that my life is shrinking, and that my world, and that my, and that my opportunities, and that my desires, and that my benefits, and that all that I might think about is shrinking, 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 shrinking down to the same day, every day, over and over and over again. And then you add on top of that sense of life shrinking down to a four walls, and my life has become small now, small in my own eyes. There's hope, and the hopelessness uh, begins to spiral. And now you add to that experience uncertainty of when this is going to end. And now it's my world is shrinking. I am nothing. I do not matter. And I'm never going to matter. And in those moments, we lose sight of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. 
God's writing a bigger story than that. Putting our faith, finding power, finding finding confidence, finding hope, finding buoyancy in the midst of strife is seeing that that is and believing and trusting that God is writing a bigger story in this moment than I can see. And I'm going to live for the bigger story. As a matter of fact, Joseph, it's interesting, you know, it mentions Joseph in this situation. <laughs> it's, it's just a curious little turn of a phrase. This is in verse 22. He says that when Joseph's end was near, he spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. That's an odd little story. What, what Gave instructions about his bones. Well, the thing about Joseph, you remember Joseph, right? Joseph was the proconsul of, of Egypt during the time of, of famine. Uh, also another sort of cultural crisis, pandemic of sorts. Joseph was the proconsul of Egypt when that occurred, and he ended up saving God's people as a result of his high p- position and power. He died there in Egypt. He died in Egypt. He was the proconsul of Egypt. That he, they would have honored him. But he said to his family before he died, when you leave this place, you take my bones with you. And what Joseph was envisioning with that, what Joseph was letting his family, letting his, letting his people know and, le- and letting us know in the wake of it is, my story is in Egypt. My story isn't even my life. My story is about, is a bigger thing than my life. My story is a bigger thing than where, the, and my story is not in this place. My story is in the place where God has promised us. And what he was saying was, take my bones to Jerusalem. Take my bones to the land of Canaan. Take my bones to that place because that's where my heart is. That's where my life is. And not just Canaan. That was a metaphor. That was a metaphor in Joseph's idea is that my life, uh, that his hope was not found in an earthly city, but in a future heavenly city, a, 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 a city that God was going to bring to this world, a redemption that God is at work accomplishing in our world. And if you and I simply see our lives in Egypt, if you and I simply see our lives in a physical Canaan, if you and I simply see our lives in a, in a family, in a child, in an experience, we're going to lose hope every other day. But the thing that gives us buoyancy in the midst of suffering is to realize God's story is bigger. God's kingdom is advancing that I may be trapped in four walls, and I don't know when that's going to end. But the story is bigger and more interesting and more captivating and more empowering than I can even know at this moment. And as, lo- and as long as, and the reason I know that's true is because God placed the reality of his promise in a person, in a place, and in a time in history to remind me that even in the life of a teenage girl, her story is bigger than being an unwed mother in the ancient Near East. God is writing a script, and we have to be in tune with the script that he's writing and not the script that I wish he was writing. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, we can ignore pleasure 
But pain insists upon being attended to. God's insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world of the story that he's writing. Can you hear him? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for writing the bigger story. Lord, I, I pray that you, would, that you would give us trust in that bigger story because you are not ashamed of us. I pray that you would give us power as we, as we embrace that bigger story. Whatever that may be, Lord, we know that it is because your city is coming. And Lord, we have latched on to firmly to the things of this world. Help us to surrender our grip knowing that you would never ask us to give back gifts that you've given us, but that you want us to want you more than the gifts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.